Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Bright Not Broken show on the Coffee Clutch Network. I am one of your hosts, Diane Kennedy, along with Rebecca Banks. Uh, and we are here tonight to kick off just a fantastic series that we're very excited about, something we've spoke about on our um, show many times, something we've written about in our book. And we have a set of guests for you all tonight that are just fantastic, Dr. Dan Peters and Dr. Susan Daniels from the Summit Center in California. And as we've discussed so many times on this show, as I mentioned, taking a whole child approach is optimal in discovering how to best assist our children, especially with twice exceptionality, that is giftedness, autism, ADHD, and other disorders. Uh, Once we understand that those factors can underlie a child's giftedness and the unique intensities, we can more deeply appreciate and support the whole child. Our overriding goal as parents and professionals should be to cultivate the wonderful and original talent in our children. That's our hope. We're looking for best outcomes here. And everything else, the interventions, the therapies, the education, should be undertaken with that goal in mind. And Dr. Daniels and uh, Dr. Peters, as I mentioned, both founders of the Summit Center. I'll give you a little background on the two of them. And Dr. Peters has been our guest before with the Worry Monster, excellent series. If you haven't listened to that and and uh, purchased his books about that, we're going to talk about those tonight, and they're just a really helpful resource. But uh, Dr. Peters has devoted his career to the assessment and treatment of children, adolescents, and families, specializing in overcoming worry and fear, uh, learning disabilities, and issues related to twice exceptionality, anxiety. He's just got it all, and he's really a helpful guy, and we're so excited to have him back. And also, Dr. Daniels is an educational director of the Summit Center. She provides differentiated educational plans for children and adolescents as part of the Gifted Comprehensive and Gifted Complex assessments. Dr. Daniels is also an internationally recognized expert in the field of gifted education and creativity. She specializes in social and emotional development of gifted children and adolescents and our favorite intensity and sensitivity of gifted individuals (laughs) across the lifespan, and the development of creative potential. And I don't want to forget to mention, Dr. Daniels is also co-editor and co-author of Living with Intensity. Welcome, Dr. Peters and Dr. Daniels. Thank Thank you. you. 
We are so excited to have you here tonight. And if we could get started, and we'd like to talk about the Summit Center, this wonderful uh, place that you both have created. Just It's just got everything. So if you could, um, tell us how the Summit Center got its start and the philosophy behind what you do and a little bit about your team. Well, about 10 years ago, I was turned on to this world of giftedness called, uh, we like to call it gifted land, and I became fascinated about the theories and ideas of talented and gifted and really intense and sensitive kids and how their needs weren't being met um, on a regular basis and how they were often misunderstood and really complex, uh, had complex profiles. And so I started reading and reading and reading, and then I started reading about this thing called overexcitabilities. And when I started reading about overexcitabilities, I started hearing about Susan Daniels and overexcitabilities, and it led me to the California Association for Gifted Conference probably about eight years ago or so. And the very first talk I went to, at I think it was 7.15 in the morning, some <laughs> awful time, right, Susan? Yeah. I yeah, sat there to learn about overexcitabilities from the expert. And um, I sat there engaged with all these questions in my head about where is a, where does a, what's a disorder versus what's an overexcitability and what's a trait versus a characteristic. And I was just soaking up everything that Susan was talking about and I left the room and coincidentally by Jim Webb got introduced to her as a psychologist in the two psychologists in the area and she said, Oh, you were at my talk and I said, Yeah, I have questions for you and the next <laughs> thing we knew we spent about two and a half to three hours on these two chairs in the uh in the Marriott talking about these kids and what we think about them and from her educational uh perspective and my clinical perspective and it started this ongoing weekly conversation over the course of a year where we started to vision this place where gifted kids and their families could be understood and get the quality understanding, care, and implementation of successful strength-based plans that would help them on their way, help them grow, help them have life satisfaction. And um, over time, we have been fortunate enough to... Um, to build the program with other amazing professionals across um, disciplines of um, counseling, social work, educational therapy, um, to really help um, meet this mission that we uh, we visioned several years ago. Well, and something that I'd like to add is that um, Dan was at the ba sort of towards the back of the room in this talk, and uh, he, if you've seen a photo of him or you've met him, Dan's just got this brilliant smile. And he's in the back of the room, beaming and nodding. And I noticed him, of course, and that's great feedback. That's always really encouraging when you're giving a talk. But I also thought, boy, this man gets it. He really gets it. And the coincidental piece there is that I was just getting ready to start writing and editing Living with Intensity. It had not, it had not, conce it had been conceived of, but it had not been, you know, germinated yet. Right. And so when, when, Jim Webb introduced uh, Stan's back with me, and he was looking at a much more academic book about um, Dabowski's work in overexcitabilities, and that's Salman Dalio's book on um, Dabowski's theory of positive disintegration. <laughs> and so he turned around and 
um, Jim said, I think you two need to talk to each other. And I said, oh, yes, you get it, don't you, you know. <laughs> and um, so this was a period of time when I was going on sabbatical to write my book, and we had a, we had a fair amount of, of time to – I was working on growing the book, and we worked on growing the center, and it was very mutually um, – reinforcing and engaging and exciting for us as well as what we could do for the community you know it was um, it was it was a great time it was a great time to have this all um, uh, coincide well it sounds really exciting and one thing that our listeners and um, and and people on Facebook have been asking about is the whole child model that you all you all just promote wholeheartedly because it does include an understanding of the strengths first. Will you all elaborate just in terms of um, the importance of identifying the strengths and also the areas of risk? And one thing I'm really interested in hearing, how that impacts um, counseling, because I think that's something parents have a lot of trouble getting um, our counselors who understand the complexities. So if you could elaborate on that, that'd be great. Sure, and I, I think as, as I think about this and going back, one of the reasons that I found a professional home within gifted psychology and gifted education is that I felt that they intuitively understood what was missing in traditional clinical psychology, which was how do you cultivate a strength and bring a strength to a talent and bring this this and how that has an impact on a child's overall development. And it, it, in recent years, clinical psychology has, has, a, has a component of positive psycho- the positive psychology movement, which is, is consistent with this and still, unfortunately, is only, I think, a subset of psychology. And so this intuitive developed strengths model made a lot of sense for me when I had been working, and again, I'm just talking first from the clinical perspective, uh, trained in a model, which is what's wrong with you. Um, what well, is your? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to jump in and say that there is an exact parallel for that, um, as I'm sure many of the listeners know, in education. With NCLB, the emphasis mm-hmm. has been on diag- diagnose and remediate, find out what's wrong mm-hmm. and fix it. You know, not looking for the strengths, which um, uh, taking a strengths-based approach in- increases and enhances motivation, and it can also be the mm-hmm. connection to shoring up the less developed areas. Sorry, Dan, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. And so when you think about this whole child perspective, um, I think there's, I just want to comment on a few words that I think gets overused and almost unfortunately becomes cliche. So one thing is the strength-based approach. I think some critics say, hey, it's not all about the strength. You know, that's overused. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's overused. The other thing that we are hearing now about um, some schools that are offering whole child um, curriculums is that the, my, the parents of gifted kids are saying they're emphasizing whole child over academic rigor and inquiry, right? So you get this whole child at the expense of intellectual and academic exploration and growth. So and they, for, should not be, they should not be mutually exclusive. The whole mm-hmm. child should be the whole child wherever that whole child is at. Exactly, exactly. And so when we are looking at a whole child model and what, how we design um, what we co-created our evaluation process, again, drawing on both of our, our backgrounds, um, which equally are essential in looking at a gifted child, is how 
how do you look at them across the developmental spectrum? What is their chronological age? What is their developmental age? What is their personality profile? What are their cognitive strengths and weaknesses? Where are they academically strong and academically weak? What is who their, are their peers? Who are their people? Who are their, yeah. Right? What is their attention and executive functioning profile? And how do you put all of this together to explain who a child is to a parent and teacher so that increased understanding can actually help with the implementation of a well-thought-out plan for growth and development. And I've got to say one more thing is, I said, you know, we, we specialize in gifted children, but what Susan and I talk about all the time is what is best practices for gifted kids and adolescents is best practices for all people. Um, it just seems to become more of a crucial and critical conversation because of how gifted kids have this great potential and they also have this great risk and vulnerability if you're not doing these things. You have to look further out on the spectrum to encompass the asynchrony that's part of uh, the mm-hmm. whole child perspective with gifted kids. It's a narrow – Potentially a narrower, narrower focus if you're not working with gifted and profoundly gifted children. Well, and also, if you don't mind, um, one thing, Dr. Daniels, is that there are more um, misunderstandings about what giftedness is. It's not just IQ. I think even as creativity is being um, accepted, I was listening to uh, one of the talks you were given, and you had mentioned artistic um, as mm-hmm. well as um, academic abilities also being recognized oh, yes. in education, but I still wonder how many education programs are getting that, really getting that idea. Because um, you know, just, I'm starting, I'm starting to see that percolate. I've got good, a small stack of, of journals on my table that are coming from different different um, aspects of the field, and creativity is no longer a, a um, I was going to say dirty word. That's not quite the right word. It's no longer a. It's no longer a maligned term. It's being uh-huh. valued, you know. So that's encouraging. Um, and there's. I, I just read an article about someone who's a new professor at another university, and they're taking the approach of the integration of creativity with the arts and the sciences, which I'm very mm-hmm. excited about, because sometimes creativity is linked solely with the arts, and that's, that's, um, that's a limiting view as well because, you know, yes. many of our eminent scientists have been so creative, and many of them have been dyslexic as well. So, you right. know, a, uh, that, that sort of brings it all together. You know, there's giftedness, there's dyslexia, and there's, there's scientific um, uh, academic aptitude, you know. Right. And also, one more thing is you all – talk about the four P's and the press being environment, how much does environment impact um, the profile and the positive psychology that you were talking about, Dr. Peters, um, or Dr. Daniels, either one, in terms of how, how does environment impact a child's development? In ter- in, in, are you talking about home environment, school environment, um, social environment, or all of them? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And if you think about how many hours a day a child spends in school, is that even in the most enriching um, 
and supportive home environments a a, a bad or difficult fit with a school environment for a gifted kid um, can take them down. So mm-hmm. it, it really is looking at all of the environments and seeing where does the child spend their – how are they – what are they doing where they're spending their time and how engaged are they and how much are they being stretched? Because the other thing that came up um, – has come up a lot with our clientele over the years is think about the gifted kid who is not struggling but is not being challenged, mm-hmm. right? So that environmental press is not actually helping them learn about the normal struggles, perseverance, grit, and resilience that is needed in life, and then they hit a wall later on, let alone the kid on the other end of the spectrum who is not getting their needs met and is struggling because of they are bright but they also have a secondary twice exceptional issue like Susan said, a dyslexia, dysgraphia, auditory processing. So they're bright, but they're struggling. I was talking today well, with, so I just say one sorry, more thing sorry. there. I was just talking to something yeah. relevant today, meeting with parents of a, dyslex, a gifted dyslexic high schooler who is a technology whiz and is so bright and so deep, and he is petrified about getting his, the 10th grade high school exit um, scores back because this gifted kid is afraid he's not even going to be able to get out of high school because he can't take tests and he did not get his extended time. Right? So what it, so his self-esteem is low and it 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 impedes it, it affects every aspect of his confidence in life. Mhm. Sorry Susan, go ahead. No, that's right. Well, one of the things that I wanted to say that that again in terms of creativity is encouraging to me is that I'm beginning to see a change in trend. And for the last, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 years, creativity was very much viewed as this, you know, eminent, rare, uh, special material that only certain people got in rays coming from, emanating from out in the ether somewhere. <laughs> you know? And there's been a shift and creativity is being presented and more understood as a capacity that we all have to some extent or another mm-hmm and an ability that can be taught and learned. Um, And so that's very exciting in terms of application in school. We're in a little bit of a transitional place here, though, in that, again, with NCOB and teacher training during this time period, it's been so rote and so heavily emphasizes, um, you know, the right answer and high test scores that teachers, it's teachers we have to get to right now um, to start thinking about their own creative potential and to be willing to just open that up gently in the classroom. You know, you don't have to be an eminent creative producer yourself to be able to facilitate creativity beautifully, you know. Well, and this is off a little bit, but with regard to Common Core, Uh and the teachers, are you seeing that that's bringing them to be a little more creative or are they still clinging a lot to the accountability issues? Well, it's definitely definitely a transitional process right now. I anticipate in another year or two we're going to have much more clarity around the Common Mm -hmm. Core and there will be assessments. But the thing that, that, you know, one of my mantras over the last however many years, eight, ten years with NCLB is that NCLB did not have to be an evil monster if we could just say that there are a variety of ways to meet the end, you know, and that teaching creatively or teaching with project-based learning or teaching with problem-based learning was not a distraction. It was a, a way to engage students meaningfully and in an excited way to get to the point that they needed to get. 
you know. Um, so there's, there's some confusion right now, uh, but the way the, the Common Core is structured, it leaves room for using project-based learning and problem-based yeah. learning, um, which are approaches that just naturally enhance uh, creative potential, you know. Right, and rigor. That and rigor, simultaneously. Yes. Absolutely, yes. absolutely, yeah. And if if I can jump in here for just a moment, this I knew this conversation would be fascinating, and, and it is. I'm I'm forgetting that I'm part hosting. I'm just listening like I want to take notes. <laughs> this is a wonderful. <laughs> you can listen to it later. <laughs> <laughs> right. I have to listen to this myself later um, yeah, yeah. when I, when I'm not the participant. But I I do want to say, and we're kind of backing up a little bit, but that's okay because I just want to make sure we cover it. When we talk in terms of, and you mentioned this, um, Dr. Peters, about the Summit Center and how you brought it together, and, and we just, first of all, I want to say that our philosophies all line up together so well because this is exactly what we have said. And it was really, you know, coming from the disability side, our first book, The ADHD Autism Connection, we always felt like there was a piece missing with our own kids, with our work. We felt like something is just off in this mm-hmm. picture. And when we discovered mm-hmm. it's because not enough focus was being put on the strengths and that, um, you know, we t- we've we talked with uh, Judith Gould and Lorna Wing about their tool they use, the DISCO, and about how it looks at things dimensionally and how it measures whether you have strengths and weaknesses and what they are, not necessarily uh, in diagnosis, whether you do or don't have a, a disorder. And that philosophy just fits so well. And when I heard you say that, I'm, I'm shaking my head going, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so when we talk about the, the psychological and the educational assessment and always combining those things together, tell us what that process is and how, how it's used together at the Summit Center and how and the reason, really, that both of them are so important um, to establish a whole child perspective. You know, and I want to say that um, first and foremost, we feel in an individualized approach to our evaluation. So what that means is we're really working with parents to first find out what are the critical questions and what, 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 are, the, what are the answers that we're looking for. And we really want to take a parsimonious approach to looking at this. So sometimes, so what we, our evaluations will range from an educational evaluation where we're really just looking at their cognitive abilities and their academic abilities to provide that first level of um, educational intervention. Um, and of course, this is where Susan's expertise comes in so well, is that what would be this differentiated education plan for this gifted child? Sometimes we start with an educational evaluation and that's where we see the first signs of a twice exceptionality issue that the child is compensated for and is just starting to become apparent and will suggest some um, further testing, which this then leads us into our more our more comprehensive evaluations where we do what we call neuropsychological evaluations. We have, we have a few evaluations. One, one is a neuroeducational evaluation where, again, we're looking at a, child, a child's um, academic, intellectual, and um, cognitive, uh, executive functioning profile and we're using that with the information that the parents have about their kids. Some parents come in really understanding their kid's personality and are really wanting to fine-tune what are the strengths and weaknesses and is there any need for intervention based on a weakness because the 
school struggle. When we really get into what we call the whole, what is a whole child evaluation, that is our neuropsychological evaluation, that we collaborate as a team. We have um, my, myself, we have another evaluator who does the actual testing, and then there's Susan who collaborates on um, different aspects of the personality, creativity, overexcitability, um, and then takes all the data that we give to her and then helps to create that differentiated education plan. And when we do this, it's a combination of parent interviewing, child interviewing, um, a number of the neuropsychological tests, um, personality testing, and all through this funnel of what, who is your child and what are the different facets of their strength profile, both personality and cognitive, and what is their challenge profile, as well as with, with some of um, academic or processing, as well as some social-emotional weaknesses, because we all know that often these kids are high in some areas, and then social and emotionally, they might be just lagging. Or they might be great with adults, but they're not so good with their same age peers. And sometimes we're, we're finding they're not even picking up some of these social cues. And why is that, right? And just because someone doesn't pick up a social cue, it doesn't mean they're on the spectrum. But right. it could mean they're on the spectrum. So we're taking all of the quantitative data and the qualitative data and filtering it through all of us on the team and compiling a very elaborative report, which we take pride in being user-friendly and um, very convertible and task-oriented. So most people can pick it up, and it's a story about the child, even though we're using a lot of the technical um, tools to get there. Mm-hmm. And can, and can I ask you, speaking of that um, specifically, when you're looking at a child with uh, twice exceptionality, and maybe there is some obvious autism in the mix somewhere or um, something like that. Now, do they come to you with that diagnosis, or are you do you do diagnosis there as well for the disability? Uh, yeah, we do a lot of. I mean, sometimes so sometimes people walk in with a file three inches thick of thousands of of dollars and years of evaluations. And they say, can you please help us understand what this all means? And that's where, I mean, that's why I think part of what drives our commitment to providing a service and a quality where you, you come away with an understanding of what this stuff means and what you can do about it. That being said, a lot of people come to us with ideas about what their kid may or may not be or totally just in the dark. And it's our job. This is where we have to live in this. You know, it's positive psychology and strength-based while living in the world of modern medicine and educational code. And so, well, Dan. And, you know, and this is we are always – what we stay up at night um, debating about amongst us is whether to diagnose how and what and should we and what are the ramifications. Because um, our most common referral questions are, is my child gifted, ADD, or both? Is my child quirky or on the spectrum, or both? You know, does my child, even though they're smart, have reading and learning issues? You know, why does my child seem to be so intense? You know, is it a problem? Is it a, there's a diagnosis? Is it sensory? Is it... So we you know, do end Dan, up, yeah. I'd like to jump in for just a minute, okay? Because I think um, there, are, there are two factors here, two pieces here that um, contribute to the profile that are not necessarily a disability, but that are, can be confounding pieces. 
and one of them is the personality slash creativity piece, and uh, the other is the overexcitability piece. And, you know, one of the things that we do, we do a number of things that are different from other um, organizations, but um, one thing that we do is personality and learning style assessment. And so we're getting information about if it, is a child a really strong extrovert or an introvert. You know, and even that, somebody, a child who's really extroverted and feels a need to learn by talking can look ADHD. You know, um, does, the, does the child process information by intuiting it or having to have hands-on learning? You know, does the, does the child make decisions by feeling or thinking? And, and then a significant dimension is um, how does the child prefer to interact in the environment in a perceiving way or in a judging way? And in our reports, we would say judging doesn't mean judging self or other. It's a preference for organization in the environment. And the kid, there's in these profile, in these personality profiles, there are indicators of creativity. You want to know how we identify creativity, and we do that from a multi-dimensional uh, approach too. But in these personality profiles, there are certain personality types that tend to be more divergent in their thinking and more creative. And so, for the child who's um, very perceptively oriented, they take in a lot of possibilities, consider a lot of possibilities, and may also toss out of a lot of possibilities, which is essential to creativity, but it can leave a child looking really scattered and potentially ADHD, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the overlay with the um, overexcitabilities, and you wanted me to just touch on that. So that's psychomotor, sensual, intellectual, imaginational, and emotional. And if you've got a child who's got all those OEs kicked into high gear as well, which is, again, very possible with a very creative child too. Um, that's, a, that's a very intense mix that puts um, in the, in the uh, profile the, the potential for great passion. Little kids with just great passion and great drive and great excitement, which is wonderful, but um, sometimes very seriously misunderstood and misdiagnosed. Would you say that's fair, Dan? Yes, and as I listen to you, Susan, and I think like, wow, this is why this stuff is so complex. You know, like when you're, <laughs> like, we're, we, are, we are looking at all of these aspects and the world wants it to be put into one diagnostic code right. when we're trying to describe all of the facets that Susan is talking about and where they fit in terms of development um, and sort of whatever is neurotypical development and then what is what we know of gifted development, right, which is a little different. Um, so, yeah, it's complex. That's why we need a lot of minds thinking about this data and trying to make sense of it because there's so many layers. Well, and I, I, do, I do think that – I'm just going to say one thing really quickly here. I do sure. think that one of the things that, that we started out pretty strong at – and we refined over the years, is we, we tend to come up with about a, what would you say, Dan, a five to seven page summary. And there's a, there's a lot, there's a tremendous amount of information in the 25 or 30 pages before that. But we are able to synthesize it in a way that it's understandable and it's usable, and we feel very good about that, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Look, may I, I, I like what you... Go ahead, yeah, no, I was going to say two things here. I was going to say I like what you said about 
then the report becomes a story, a, a byline story about the child, which makes so much more sense because that in itself is going to give a, a whole perspective. That's better than here's the area of this, this, and that. And, you know, especially um, I know from my children when they were younger in the assessments that we had, they were always very specific, all geared towards the disability. And of course, which why we were missing that piece. But I also want to say to to you all, we're going to keep flowing. We were going to do two parts and end here today, but we're going to just um, we're going to just do one part. So we will keep going for a little while longer because this conversation is is too exciting, and we need to just um, stay on the roll we're on. So with that, go ahead, Becky. Okay, and I had a question going back to the narrative that the parents leave with, and um, ultimately I'm going to assume they go to the school. And here you have um, an environment where you may or may not have teachers who understand divergent thinking. You may or may not have um, programs that are available um, in terms of research-based strategies and the teacher training that's been received. and you have mastery learners. Then you have, like you said, your intuitive learners. Um, once they leave the summit center, um, how do you all support them in, in the educational environment? Or well, do it, you? Yeah, we, mean, in, a, in a number of ways, and it's based on need. So uh, ideally, um, I always say the best thing that we can do is work ourselves out of a job. Right, so if we if we right. if, if we do our job well and the world responds, then kids' needs get met. And the next step is so let's see what the school does with the report. And there are some situations where the parents have already been going round and around and around, and they know that it's going to help to have us advocate and explain the results at an IEP or a student study team or 504 meeting. Mm -hmm. And in that case, we go. Um, there are other times where um, there is a positive there's a positive resolution and then the parents keep in touch with us and it's we call it like you know intermittent and ongoing coaching and then there are other times yeah. when um, and I'll let Susan talk more about this because this is hers when state people need some really whether they're homeschooling and or working in the school really need some um, detailed steps of curriculum development um, and planning and advocacy and that's where Susan will take the evaluation to a, to a next step of writing up and helping to um, bring to bear an, a differentiated education plan. And what I can say to, um, to Susan's horn, you know, as a psychologist going into these meetings, you always have to be very careful because I, am, I, I never would tell an educator how to teach or what to teach. It's just it's, it's not where my training is, and, and, and I think it can be quite offensive. When you have an educator who trains teachers who can come in and talk to teachers in a way where getting everyone on the same team, um, it's, 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 it's very effective. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and, um, from my perspective, I'm, I'm still a professor of teacher education, so I'm out in the schools a lot, and I stay fairly current, you know, about what's going on in terms of curriculum and at various grade levels. Um, so one of the things that I try and do if we're talking about a fairly typical case, is to go in and, and use the approach 
that we use with the children with the setting and try and find out, okay, what is working here? What's good? Where can we, where can we start from a positive place and then layer on to that? Um, Dan, I don't know if you wanted me to go into the, the more um, um, uh, sort of or off the curve uh, case that I had, but I'll, I'll just characterize this in, in a, a couple of sentences. Um, the, the outside end of what I do is I was appointed by uh, the courts to be a court expert on a profoundly gifted child, and I worked um, for that child in the court for a year and a half. And we had a, um, a young person who was functioning um, six to eight grades above grade level and really didn't have um, uh, disabilities. Um, he, he, there was a question of whether or not he was ADHD, and um, we determined no, that he was um, uh, highly overexcitable. But, you know, something that's very interesting there it, that we have to think about is, again, in that profile of asynchrony, if you've got a young person, if you've got, say, like a, a 9 or 10-year-old who's, who's doing college-level um, physics and chemistry and, and, and um, hands-on robotics, and then also plays kickball with the 9-year-olds down the street, some of the behaviors can look like they're um, uh, a, a learning disability or a... Um, yeah, um, Dan, give me another word. Um, I don't have you know, a, a less developed area, or even even potentially a problem area. When they're not, it's just the child being a child at that age, and it's such a contrast to the obvious abilities that it seems to be a disadvantage or a disability. Um, and that's again when we get into some really complex work. Mm -hmm. And I needed to talk to the courts, and I needed to talk to um, the schools, the various schools, and online programs, and the Davidson Institute. And um, the nature of this child's needs were so multidimensional; it, it required working with a number of different organizations to get his needs met. In addition to homeschooling, you know. And can I contrast that for a second? I don't. Um... Sure. Is that so? That was the complex of the complex. And on the other hand, um, I was at an IEP meeting last week where we did an evaluation, and the parents came in because they were wondering if their young child had ADHD. And we did a comprehensive evaluation, and he actually did, in fact, have ADHD and 155 IQ, and unbeknownst to anyone, was dyslexic. And he's a first grader. And it was one of these. It was one of these times where you know you're first grader, so it's tough in the school to really you know make the argument of you know what's you know give him time to learn to read and write. You know you couldn't. He was very dysgraphic. Couldn't read his writing. Um, and parents tried to advocate, 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 and they kept hitting walls because uh, the teacher was saying, well, he's performing at grade level, which we all know if you have 155 IQ and you can perform at the low average range, then you're fine. Well, right. so. Um, I, we, I went to the IEP, and they had an independent evaluator um, also participate and do some supplemental tests. And it was one of those things that everything just went right. You had um, people presenting the data, people understanding from the perspective of the, the profile, and it ended with everyone putting together an IEP plan to emphasize his strengths and help him get some resource and some remediation, which he does need, as well as accommodation for his writing um, and some behavioral stuff for his ADHD. And everyone walked away with a smile on his face. 
on their faces. So it's, it's, it runs, we find it runs the gamut. And when people say, so what can we expect once we get this evaluation? The answer is you can expect anything or everything because sometimes it is really tough and it's a fight and other times it opens everyone's eyes right away and it greases the tracks and it's just well, going and, through the process. And something else about getting the report, for some people it can be just the ticket, okay, this is fine, we can do this and it's fairly simple and you know, let's, let's, get, going, let's get going with this. But for some people you get the report and it's just the beginning because it's the first time all the pieces have come together and you've gotten the picture. So and and so then it's it becomes the, you know begs the question of okay where do we start now, right. you know and 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 the approach needs to come in in phases and stages and be reevaluated. So there there's the whole gamut, you know it can be right away and and fairly easy. Um, long-standing and fairly challenging or anything in the middle. <laughs> that's well, a the answer, but it's true. It's true. And that's why no. centers like yours are so rare because, first of all, professionals are rare who get what you're saying. But to put all this together, this is a, com- this is a complexity, and you have to bring together like-minded other professionals. So I want to say, just emphasize again how unique but how absolutely um, needed a center like yours is. Go ahead, Becky. You were going to speak. Well, and I was going to say there. There again. Well, your center and parents are so often working against established institutions that want clean-cut boxes that we can put people into, give them this label, give them an accommodation, and move on. And that the whole child approach brings to bear just the portrait and the the complexity of the individual. And it does go to bat for parents to hold this particular environment accountable for meeting this child's needs, abilities, and uh, needs for, um, I don't know, acceleration and needs for remediation both, as well as needs for social, emotional um, supports within that environment as well. And so I just, I, I truly appreciate what you all do. I just, I can't, as an educator, I just, I, I marvel at it because the opportunity to work with a group that would understand each individual who comes across um, through the caseload, I mean, to me, this is just the only way to deal with it and truly meet each each person's needs, especially, um, let me ask you this, in terms of social-emotional development, how do you all help in the educational setting um, help support that, especially perhaps educators who, who don't understand those aspects so well? Because most people don't understand um, that full range of social-emotional needs for twice-exceptional children. Right, and I think it's how do we break it down, and this is what we try mm-hmm. to really think um, precisely about what the recommendations are that will work. So the other thing is, even though we have a lot of recommendations, we try to only list ones that are are somewhat like are reasonable, right? Because sometimes uh-huh. you get these reports that, yeah, this would be great if we could do these three pages of recommendations, but what's reality? So part of yes. doing that is looking at the child's profile. And so some of the social, so let's say one child's social emotional deficit might be that they're not reading facial cues and they're having trouble in what is usually the unstructured time. 
So then it's like, how do we get the staff to know that when there's unstructured time like PE and recess and lunch, that's where they're likely to run in their difficulties, and we need to put together some sort of behavioral support to help that mm -hmm. child get through those situations, knowing that that's going to be some of their trigger points. Related to that is a lot of these kids have trouble with transitions, right? They have these executive functioning stuff, and they, have, they get obsessed and passionate with whatever they're doing, and they can't transition, which leads to a meltdown, which is a developmental immaturity for whatever age they are. So then we're having to work, whether it's through a 504 or an IEP, how do you build in the supports for, to help this child transition? Another thing that Susan always talks about, um, which is so true, sometimes this child who's having a social and emotional seen as a deficit actually needs to be with kids that are one or two years older than them a couple hours a day. And all of a sudden their emotional and social issues go away for those two hours of the day. Which because they're with peers. Right, right. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to talk about um, another um, somewhat unusual uh, situation, but I think it's it's pertinent to this conversation because again, you're asking about the autism piece and all this. Um, part of the work that I do is I go into districts and I train teachers, and oftentimes when I do that, I spend time in the classrooms and in the schools, and it's it's really mutu mutually rewarding. And so there was this young man; um, he was four. And outside of the scope of the, the, the grades that we were actually working with, but because of training the teachers and then becoming more aware of dual exceptionalities and the like, um, this, this young man was walking between two buildings where there was an enclosed um, ramp. And he, his hand was on the railing, and he started talking about his hand, how his hand, and he has autism. He was clearly diagnosed as autistic. And um, he started talking aloud about how his hand was getting warm and the Brushing against the railing was creating the friction. The friction was making his hand warm. And the aide heard this and thought, oh, my gosh, we've got to get Daniel. <laughs> so it was very interesting. And over time, it, um, uh, the young man opened up more and more um, with his special education teacher and um, started talking about um, robots and robotics. And he was fascinated and he was obsessed and he was uh, uh, you know, just enamored. And we came to understand that he had a wealth of, of knowledge, I mean, high-level factual knowledge and procedural knowledge. And part of what really got him, caused a meltdown for him was that he wanted to do things that his little body couldn't do because he didn't have the fine motor coordination yet. And not because it was a delay, but because he was five at that point. And so with the cooperation of the school and then having an understanding of the kids that they had at the school, they partnered him with a fifth grader who loved robotics, who didn't have the best social skills, but was sweet. And the two of them worked together for like, I don't know, four or five months, and the younger boy taught the older boy uh, um, how to build a robotic arm. <laughs> Oh, so wow. the older boy, who was gifted, who was gifted, but not as highly gifted as our younger autistic child, uh, and, and they just, they were a perfect little uh, dyad for about five months, and then after they finished, they went to the different classrooms in the school and did um, you know, show and tell of what their project was and what they had done. And it, it was just an amazing thing. There was a, there was a deep um, friendship and, mm -hmm. and, and intellectual respect there. You know, and they'd work very hard on their project, and then they'd get extremely silly too, and it was darling. 
you know. And I'm not like Huh? I was going to say that's great emotional therapy for both of them for um, oh, building social bonding. I mean that's that's just a natural a natural way to really help that. That's wonderful. It's, yeah, thank you. And it, you know, it's also a really good example of how you cannot separate the academic, intellectual, and emotional, social, emotional. Right. Right. Because they were able to develop a friendship because of a common interest at a similar level. You know, well, and through that, they also developed social skills that they might not have been able to had they been separate and kept in their respective peer groups. Exactly. And, you know, it was really a marvel to see because there wasn't a lot of disagreement between the two of them. They sort of sized each other up, figured each other out, you know, had some interesting early conversations and then, you know, sort of said to some facilitating adults, can we do this? And we got them the resources and they did it and they developed their way of interacting and working together and it was it was all in all a really positive experience. But you, clearly in that setting, what was needed was um, provided, but you had to really go outside of the, oh, we can't go past one or two grades because that would be, you know, too extreme. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and and right. The, the battle becomes more uphill, and I'm, oh, my goodness, this conversation is so exciting, but there there are a few more points that I hope we can get to. If not, we're just going to have to reschedule and have you all back again for another <laughs> part, but... <laughs> But um, we, we've mentioned this a little bit, so vitally important to the conversation, and that is the terms intensity and sensitivity. We, we've talked often about, and we wrote um, in our book, Bright Not Broken, uh, Dr. Silverman had put us on, Linda Silverman of the Gifted Development Center had told us that there were three um, really important qualities that you could almost attach to different degrees, but to um, most gifted individuals. And she said intensity, sensitivity, and perfectionism. And so we can't let this go without talking about intensity. And Dr. Daniels, your book, Living with Intensity, of course, and as you mentioned that earlier, um, certainly fits into there. Tell us about those intensities and how sometimes, especially in the school setting, that these get really confused with behaviors. Yeah. Well, intensity and sensitivity are two sides of the same coin. Um, the the uh, living with intensity work comes from the theory of Casimir Dombrowski, and he outlined five areas of overexcitability. Now, that was the translation from the original Polish. It had since been decided by those of us who work with this theory and the concept of overexcitabilities that the term would have been better translated to super stimulatabilities. But that's even mm -hmm. more of a mouthful and harder to say, right? But that gets. That gets at that um, uh, sensitivity and intensity because from the Dabrowskian perspective, essentially what he's saying is, is that um, people who are gifted may have these overexcitabilities. It's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correspondence, although our research now shows that, yes, indeed, they do occur more in the gifted population than in the uh, more typically developing population. So we're talking about psychomotor overexcitability, which is an excitation of the system, of, of the, the um, neurological, of, of the central nervous system. Um, and it's psychomotor overexcitability. Some people think, oh, well, that must mean that you have 
you know, good athletic uh, abilities or what have you. And it's not. It's just a, it's a high energy level and it's a high sensitivity. Um, so these are kids that um, can move fast, talk fast, have a lot going on. Um, and again, their behaviors can look ADHD. Now, Dan and I have had several talks about this, and you can have overexcitabilities going on and still potentially have an ADHD component as well. Um, but the psychomotor piece is highly correlated with giftedness. And um, part of that, we believe, is, okay, so the, the, um, the sensitivity part <laughs> is taking in much more from the environment. And the intensity part is having the capacity to express much more, which both of those. I'm sorry. Well, that's, that's a wonderful that boy of of all my understanding that I just got that visual so clear when you said that of the intake yeah. and the outtake. That's that's an excellent way to frame that. Yeah, there's there's more capacity for intake, and so then there's potentially more. Um, potential for, you know, expression as well. And so the, we believe that Dabrowski thought that psychomotor and sensual were the lesser o, OEs, and mm -hmm. those of us who work with the theory now don't feel that way because the psychomotor piece is the energy to persevere um, with a passion and a, and a project and et cetera. Um, and also to stay awake. <laughs> you know, I've had several parents say, things along the lines of, well, I didn't really know if my child was gifted. I just thought that she was awake so much more. That's why she knew more, you know. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then the sensual overexcitabilities um, are the five senses, you know. And again, that's the way we take in information from the environment. And if our eyes are taking in, you know, 14,000 different shades versus our neighbor who's taking in 5,000 different shades, then we may have greater potential to be an artist or to be a designer or, you know, who knows what. And that applies across all of the sensory modalities. Um, and then the, the flip side of that is that can be very overwhelming. It can cause children to, to have the need to remove themselves from environments at times because there's too much stimulation, you know. Um, Intellectual overexcitability is not intellectual ability. Intellectual overexcitability is, again, the sensitivity and the intensity that drives the need to know. I like an intellectual overexcitability to what I call the perpetual toddler syndrome. But why? But how come? How about? You know, and there's just, there, I feel almost uncomfortable saying this, but there are some people who have kind of a dry intellect. You know, it's like I have the capacity to do it, I'm interested in it, but there isn't necessarily this intense um, absorption and drive and desire. And that's what intellectual overexcitability is about. And, you know, just a simple um, example of that, how, you know, how that can um, provide, how that can uh, create some difficulties is, again, the perpetual topper system. You have a third, fourth, fifth grader going, oh, 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 I want to know how about it. Is that like this? Could I? And right. instead of each of being thrilled that this child is excitable and has so many questions and, you know, really wants to delve and know more, that can be very um, inconveniencing if you're in a traditional school system trying to, quote, unquote, get through your curriculum, you know. Um, Imaginational overexcitability is highly correlated, of course, with creativity. Um, it's a marvelous thing. It uh, takes children into 
oh, hires like to talk about Calvin and Hobbes and you know, just all kinds of different different ways of looking at things. And that can be the fantastical and the imagistic. Um, but it can also be in terms of looking at possibilities of what, what might be. So I'm very fond of imagination over excitability. I don't see a big downside to it, except that sometimes people are concerned that if somebody's if a child's very imaginationally overexcitable and they have their imaginary friends and they have their imaginary pets and they have their imaginary towns, you know, are they, quote, unquote, in touch with reality? And, Dan, I think you and I have had this question, but my benchmark for that is do they have a couple of people that we all see as being real and in the same room that they can have relationships with? And then that's a healthy sign. I don't get uh, too worried about kids having imaginary uh, friends because a lot of highly creative um, eminent adults did for quite a long time in their lives. Um, the downside of it, and it took me a while to realize this, is that the imaginational end can also kind of go dark, you know, and it can, it can dovetail with a highly emotionally overexcitable child and, and go into Dan's realm of high worry and high anxiety. You know, because the child's smart enough and has the imagination to imagine some not so good things. Um, an example was I was working directly with children when 9/11 happened, and I had a bunch of children that got very worried about that there were animals left in apartment buildings there and who was taking care of them. You know, um, and that's got a moral dimension to it too, which is interesting, and that sort of dovetails into the emotional overexcitability too. In the emotional over, realm of emotional overexcitability, that was kind of the hallmark of Dabrowski's theory. And the, the second part of his theory was that um, how do people evolve? And they evolve between, they evolve by looking at what's between what is and what could be. And it's the combination of the emotions and the sensitivities in that way and caring with the intellect that um, as individuals grow, they see the potential for how things might be and they seek to make changes. And in fact, for some people, that's sort of the perfectionist piece. They, because they can see the possibilities, they think they should be able to create them. Does that make sense? Oh, mm -hmm. absolutely, absolutely. That it's vivid, and you've we're definitely. I think we need an entire show just on the intensities and sensitivity. <laughs> I do because it's it's just. I mean, and this is also a consistent piece that, as you mentioned earlier, looks different at developmental stages, and that's exactly that's part of what gives the the complexity to everything and can throw so many people off, especially well-trained professionals. And unfortunately, we've got to um, get close to winding down here. We're, we're probably over our time. But um, if, if you can, Becky, will you touch a little bit um, with Dr. Peters here on the worry monster? And again, we can refer to the show we've done, but I'd, I'd like him to just talk briefly so you, you can ask him questions about anxiety because I know that's one of your areas as well. Well, absolutely. And Dr. Peters, um, if you could just explain how anxiety can become something that that really to a large degree can uh, challenge and cripple some of these um, dual exceptional children. I'd love for you to explain it. And um, gosh, I don't know if we have time for you to offer some tips because you've got some wonderful ones. Okay. I will try to be succinct here. So um, 
the reason I got into giftedness is because I was seeing so many anxious kids, and it turned out a lot of them happened to be gifted and twice exceptional before I even knew a lot about it. And so because of all the overexcitabilities that Susan mentioned, combined with advanced thinking, it seems like gifted and twice exceptional kids seem to be more susceptible to anxiety, feeling those scary things in their body and thinking all of those wonderful and scary things that could possibly happen. And this makes the, a, a vulnerable situation for a gifted and twice exceptional kid. And it can be debilitating. It can be debilitating with extreme perfectionism, um, not willing to try anything new unless they can be the best, um, meltdowns, refusal, avoidance. It can also be debilitating in terms of social anxiety or separation anxiety, being away from their parents. Um, a lot of obsessive compulsive um, characteristics and symptoms happen the higher up you get on the intellectual spectrum. So anxiety is a monster, and that's where the worry monster comes in, and his friends, the perfectionistic monster and the OCD monster, and they all work on these kids and uh, many of us adults to limit us um, from life. And, um, and when you think about all this potential that these kids have to bear and we want to help them develop, often anxiety is the culprit. Um, with the twice exceptional kid, you have to remember that there is something that is hard for them and that usually that thing that's hard for them creates anxiety in a social situation, in a classroom situation, for example. In terms of tips, Twice exceptional and gifted kids, as we know, are bright. I have found that teaching them about the biological fear response and how anxiety works is 50% of the battle. Teach them about their amygdalas. Teach them about the fight and flight and survival response. Teach them about what happens in their body when they get the physiological sensation. And then teach them that it's the worry monster that is telling them these quiet thoughts. Now remember, tell them it's magical and mythical, so it's not a real thing that's going to sneak up on them. And that it, it whispers these thoughts that all are what we call these cognitive errors or irrational thinking. What if this happens? What if? What will? What should be? What am I? What, you know, all these what ifs trigger that response and that they can learn different thinking strategies and different behavior strategies to slowly and step-by-step step get victories over the worry monster and reclaim their life to be more in the world in a confident way. Wow. Oh that, was, that was the most succinct, wonderful, wonderful way to put that. That was fantastic. We had somebody tweet us the other day and she said as she was reading the book she felt like a bobblehead because she was agreeing with everything <laughs> i'm i'm being the bobblehead here you're talking and i'm shaking my head going excellent excellent i mean it's so important it, it is this has been a fantastic show we just can't thank you both enough for helping us kick off this series on the whole child and sharing your valuable information and, of course, telling us about the Summit Center and uh, where everyone, if they have an opportunity, <laughs> whether you live in California or not, you need to find a way to get to the Summit Center and this wow. wonderful team because you all are you are just wonderful. And um, we are so excited to be able to present this. And I, I would say in the in the future we will have to come back together again and maybe take these some of these subjects into a little more depth because there's so much um, information that you can share. Absolutely. Well, thank you for all that you do. Well, Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. Can you um, tell our listeners quickly where they can find more information about the Summit Center? 
Okay. Yes, um, on the internet, www.summitcenter.us. Okay. Wonderful. And on and the Summit Center is on Twitter as well. Is that right? I know you are. Yes, it's um, Summit Centers on Twitter and Facebook. I think we're okay. much more active on Facebook, possibly than Twitter. But uh, you know, we're figuring that that whole world out. <laughs> Twitter is right. That's how we were, and now we're it. Once you get it and get in the groove, then um, but it, it's a learning curve. There's no doubt about that. Definitely so, find us on Facebook. We're posting a lot. Okay. Okay. Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you so very guys. much. And we will um, look forward to continuing this series on the whole child. Um, you might want to listen to this show back again because there's so much packed in here. And, of course, we'll have to ask forgiveness for going overboard, but I'm sure Marianne of the Coffee Clats will understand when you get four overexcitable authors together, this is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Time is going to go by the wayside. <laughs> I think we actually did pretty good, all things considered. Yeah, yeah I think absolutely. we did. <laughs> <laughs> you yes, all have a do. great evening. <laughs> Thanks. Have a wonderful Thank you. Thank you. you. Thank Bye-bye. you, everyone, for listening to us here on Bright Not Broken on the Coffee Clatch. As always, we thank our 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 lead host, um, Dr. Um, I'm calling her a doctor. Maybe she's going to be Mary Ann Russo for providing the Coffee Clatch, and we are so thankful you've listened, and we hope you'll join us again very soon. Have a good evening.